0: So we're ready to persevere this morning? I love it. All right. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen. So uh, I know when I was a, a kid, I started reading books by like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. And like uh, I love this, this idea of time travel. So like the book uh, The Time Machine. Uh, and then uh, uh, later, you know, like the movie like Back to the Future. And anybody like time travel movies, books? And, uh, and so it kind of poses a question of if you had the opportunity to get into a time machine and go into the future and see everything that was going to happen to you—the good, the bad, and the ugly—would uh, you want to do that, or would you prefer just to kind of take life as it comes? So, who would who would who would want to see the future? One person, two people, three people. All right, who who doesn't want to see the future? Who doesn't want to know it's okay? Most of us. Interesting. Um, and so, uh, and, and and so, but if if you did accidentally find out what the kind of details about your future life, like, I think we would agree that, like, if we knew kind of some details about the future, like, if you knew somewhere around 10 years from now you were going to win the lottery, would that affect your viewpoint today? Would it affect the way you spend money or save money today? I, I think it would. If, if you're like, eh, I'm going to be a millionaire in a few years, yeah, why not, right? And so if you found out that, like, incredible joy awaited you, or incredible terror awaited you. That would affect the way we live today. Um, if Sonda, uh, when, when we were in college, if Sonda had looked in the future and saw herself marrying Chris Hemsworth, who plays Thor, um, I'd, <laughs> she might have turned down my offer of a date, you know, once upon a time, you know what I'm saying? So, like, like uh, if we could see things in the future, whether that's a good or a bad thing, like, that would affect the way we live in the present. And then the, there comes the whole issue of, well, if I change the way I lived in the present, would that same future come about? And it just our heads want to explode. But we won't camp out on that, on that too much. But uh, when it comes to biblical prophecy, and, and that's where we are in, in Daniel 9, we're in this uh, prophetic uh, part of the book. Listen, everybody loves preaching Daniel chapters 1 through 6, but we get into like where we are now, and it's tough, okay? So uh, uh, let's bear with one another, okay? We're going we're gonna to make the most of it. This is a passage that's intended to be very encouraging, um, and it can be very encouraging if we don't focus on the trees, but if we can kind of zoom out and look at this beautiful forest. Uh, that, but what we're going to see here is this overview that God is carrying this universe somewhere. And God is carrying along with his good plan for the universe, the sovereign God has a good plan for you and for all who know him, and we can trust in that, even if we don 't have all the details that, that maybe we wish that maybe we wish we had so there 's some people that spend so much time examining uh, passages of scripture like this one. Uh, that maybe they get caught so much in the trees that they miss the forest. And this is an important text. We're not just skipping it because it's an important text because uh, the New Testament builds on this and, and, and repeats this text, and Jesus uh, uh, speaks of it, and so it's an important text to understand. But um, we don't get all of the specifics that we would like to have. When we're dealing with biblical prophecy, especially with apocalyptic uh, stuff like here in Daniel and in Revelation, apocalyptic writing, we don't get all the answers. We don't get all the details that maybe we wish we had. We, but what we do get is we get a big picture view. Um, and there's some big picture keys that we, can, that we can hold on to. There's some certainties that we can build our life on, that we can hang our life on, that, we can, uh, that, that are foundational for our lives. And so God has not given us um, unlimited insight into the future, but he does want us to understand the future. He does want his people to understand kind of how how the future is gonna is gonna play out. Um, now we don't get the answer of you know what stocks to buy or what date this or that's gonna happen on, but we do get an overview through this and other prophetic passages. We get a, a, an overview of of what good future God has in store. There's gonna come a point in time where Christ will return, and injustice sin, wickedness. It will be dealt with. This world will be freed from its chronic sin, sickness, and some will rejoice on that day, and others will weep on that day. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. And to be a Christian is to be someone who's bent, the, uh, bent their knee uh, to, to Jesus as the one true king and, and live now acknowledging his true kingship so that we can be those who rejoice on that day that's to come okay so those who understand the future live lives of courage and conviction in the present those who understand the future live lives of courage and conviction in the present that doesn't mean uh, that we have all the answers about the future, but if we understand the basic future that God has for his people, that's gonna empower us to live with courage and conviction in the present. And we see that in the life of Daniel and his friends. We've seen earlier in this book, the, the kind of the easier parts of the book to comprehend, we've seen Daniel, uh, no matter what kind of persecution or seduction was thrown his way, he acknowledged, you know, I'm living in Babylon, I'm living under a beastly empire, but my, my loyalty uh, is to a, a greater kingdom. Um, than, than the one I'm living in. And, and, and because he knew that that his God would was taking his world and his life and his universe somewhere good, somewhere glorious, he was able to live day to day with courage and conviction. And you and I, whether it's at school, at work, on, on the street where we live, um, we can live today with courage. We can live today with conviction if we have a basic understanding of the future that God has for us. And so um, the context here of Daniel 9, if we remember... Daniel, this is where we were last week, Daniel uh, had been praying. He prayed this incredible prayer of repentance in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, what's happened was he, 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 he's been an exile in Babylon. Remember as a teenager, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came. They rolled up and they destroyed Jerusalem, and they took Daniel and a bunch of other people in chains, and they marched them across the known world to Babylon. And Daniel has been in exile his whole life. He's almost, he's in his 80s now. And he's going back, and he's pouring over scripture. He's pouring over this letter that the prophet Jeremiah had sent the people and he, and he sees that Jeremiah had said that the people would be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Well, Daniel's doing the math. He says, man, that 70 years is almost up. It, it's, um, and it's a period that kind of represents a period of a person's life. He says, man, it, it's almost up and I'm looking around at my people and we're still just as much a mess as we've always been. We're still a mess. We're still messing up. We're still stiff-necked when it comes to God. We're still idolatrous. We're still living for ourselves. Man, what hope do we have? And he just He goes and he falls down before God and he says, God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive me of my sin. He confesses the sin of himself and his people. And he says, God, you're righteous. So for the sake of your name's sake, not because of great things we've done, kind of like what we just heard from Eli, not because of great things we've done, but because of your great name. Will you save us? Will you rescue us? Will you deliver us? But there's this dilemma. And the dilemma is if God's good and righteous and true and just how can he vindicate unrighteous people and still be righteous? And so there's this problem of how can, how can that problem be solved? And in, 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 when, when Gabriel, the angel, comes to Daniel now, he's going to give him part of that answer, all right? And so, so Daniel's been praying. Chapter 9, verse 20, that's kind of an overview or summary statement. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, while I was presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift of flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And so um, Gabriel the angel, not to be understood as a little fat cherub with baby wings and a diaper, but this warrior warrior angel this messenger of God comes and this is by the way the same Gabriel who would announce the birth of Christ in in, in 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 a few hundred years um it's kind of the other half of what he's about to say here all right Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says this he says verse 22 he made me understand speaking with me and saying oh Daniel I have now come out to give you insight And understanding at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. If you'll notice in this couple of verses, the words insight and understand are used multiple times. God's desire in giving us His word is not to conceal the truth from us. God's desire is to reveal the truth to us. God's desire is to give you and I understanding. his desire is to help us understand, first of all, who Christ is, uh, what his plan is, um, and, 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 and he wants us to understand how loved we are by God. That's exactly what the angel Gabriel tells Daniel. He says, I want you to know and understand God's plan. And he says, I'm giving you this answer because you are greatly loved. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul would write the letter to the Ephesians, and in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, he would pray this prayer that, that the Ephesians and that you and I would have insight and understanding to understand and comprehend the depth of God's love for us. And it's interesting that Gabriel tells, uh, tells Daniel, I want you to comprehend what's going to happen. I also want you to comprehend and understand that you're loved by God. Because sometimes we have people that try to understand the plan of God And they lose sight of the heart of God. And we can't fathom or comprehend the plan of God if we don't understand the heart of God. So God loves Daniel so much that he sends a word to him. But God loves the world so much, we're going to find out in in John, God loves the world so much that he sends the word. He sends his son to give his life for us. So we would not perish but have life forever. God's plan is to redeem and to restore this world. And so, uh, man, I love it when we get really caught up and we study prophecy and we study about the end times. That's exciting. I'll have a cup of coffee and we'll talk and debate, but let's not get so caught up in trying to decipher God's plan that we leave God's heart behind. We can't understand God's heart if we don't understand God's plan. We can't understand God's plan if we don't understand God's heart. And Gabriel brings both of those together for Daniel. So that word understanding is used a lot here. This is intended to be a vision that's encouraging to us, that brings insight to us, that brings understanding to us. But if we're honest, it's confused a lot of people for a long time. And so we may have different views on this passage. You may have no views on this passage. You may have never come across this before, or you may have really firm views on this. And whatever those views are, mine probably are not going to be the same, okay? Um, And so I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to quote Alistair Begg, who is a great Irish preacher. And he says, when he goes into preaching this passage, he, he said, In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening, and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. So I don't know if you watched the faces walking out of the first service. You probably saw some confused and, and, and annoyed or conf- people. And maybe a few encouraged people. So, so let's hang in there and hopefully get the encouragement. That's intended for us here. In the Bible Project video about, about Daniel, there's a passage, there's a statement at the end that says the book of Daniel gives a pattern and a promise for all future generations. The pattern is that we see all the way through Daniel is that human beings become beasts when they don't acknowledge God's kingdom, and the promise is that God has overcome the beast and will rescue His world. And we need to hold that pattern. Humans and human kingdoms become beasts when they don't acknowledge God's kingdom, and we need to hold that promise. God um, has overcome the beast through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he will rescue his world. We need to hold those together as we read this. So beginning of verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed. That word week is really the word seven, so 70 weeks. Sevens are decreed. Some translated as 70 weeks of years. Most understand this to be 70 times seven. That's what Gabriel is telling Daniel. Seventy sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place or person or people. Know, therefore, and understand, there it is, Understanding again, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it will be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood, and to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he will make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Plain as day, right? That's a little confusing isn't it? And, and you can study this for a long time and it's still confusing. And what could happen though is we could get kind of married to our own interpretation of this or we could get so drawn in here that we kind of miss the big picture. And what we want to attempt to do today is kind of present a big picture of what is the hope for the future that this passage is presenting. All right, and so Daniel 9 verse 24 speaks of 70 times 7. And so people have multiplied 70 times 7. 490, and all kinds of mathematical schemes have been devised to make 539 BC plus 490 land on the end of the world or on the coming of Christ. And the reality is there's some pretty creative ways people have gone about this depending on where you start the timer and where you end the timer. But the reality is the 70 times 7 number is probably intended to be a symbolic period of time. Because, again, we're reading apocalyptic language, and apocalyptic language uses symbolic numbers, okay? And so we need to think about the, this number seven, 70 times seven. So seven is the number of days that it took God to create the universe. Seven in Hebrew is this idea of completion. And so 70 times seven uh, would be kind of the idea of a sovereign God is going to bring an end to this world He's really going to bring a fulfillment to this world, and he's going to do it in his perfect, good, and sovereign time. And that probably isn't telling you anything you didn't know before you got here, but that's something that we can find rest in. That regardless of what Babylon we live in, whether Babylon is working through oppression or whether Babylon is working through seduction, we can have courage and conviction today because there's a sovereign God governing the course of history, and he is carrying this world, he's carrying his people towards a good End. The other thing about 70 times 7 is we really can't understand it if we don't understand the idea in the Old Testament of the year of Jubilee. We're familiar with the idea of the year of Jubilee. So Leviticus chapter 25 says that there would be every seven years, the people of Israel living in the land, every seven years, they would take a Sabbath year. They would take a year-long sabbatical and they wouldn't be working hard like they've worked all the other years. Uh, there would be a, a year of rest. You're thinking, how do I make that work? And and uh, and it was and then and that was a, a big deal every seven years. But every um, seven weeks of years, see, there's that phrase again: seven, seven, seven weeks of years. Every seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, uh, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Go go on to the next verse. You will sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of Atonement. You will sound the trumpet through all of your land. Verse ten. And you will consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So what the year of Jubilee was, was so every seven year there was a Sabbath year. Every seven times seven year, every 49th year, starting the 50th year, there would be a year of Jubilee. And that's when everybody's debts would be forgiven. How's that sound? Sound like a pretty good deal? Uh, If you were a slave, you would be set free. And the problem was part of the reason Israel was put in exile was they didn't honor their Sabbath day of the week. They didn't honor the Sabbath year, and they didn't honor the, 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 the year of Jubilee. Because you know what? They were busy, and they were important, and time and money. All the reasons we don't honor the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath today. And so God says to them, if you won't keep the Sabbath, let me help you keep the Sabbath. I'm going to stick you over here in exile for 70 years, okay? But 70 times 7, if you're thinking as a Hebrew, if you're thinking as Daniel... That's like, that's 490 years. That's a tenfold jubilee. So what Daniel is hearing from uh, Gabriel may not be, hey, start getting your calculator out and figure out exactly what year the end of the world's gonna be. He's hearing that there's gonna come a point when God is going to bring about a tenfold jubilee. God is going to bring about the jubilee of all jubilees and there's going to be a level of slaves being set free and sins being forgiven and debts being cancelled that, that all the other year of jubilee just pointed toward. And so it's really interesting that of all the ways Jesus could have kicked off his ministry when he stood in the, in the, in the, in the, in the synagogue of his hometown, he unroll, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. We read this in Luke chapter 4. He reads Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's he's anointed me to give sight to the blind to to set the captives what? Free. Jesus defines his ministry as the year of jubilee to end all jubilees. His life, his death, his resurrection is all about canceling our debt of sin. It's all about atoning for and setting us free from sin. It's all about taking people who are slaves and setting slaves free free. And it's not by accident that when Jesus is asked, how many times do I forgive somebody seven times? He says, how many times do you do it? Seventy times seven, exactly here. This is, that's Daniel nine. Why would he say that? Because Jesus has ushered in the world that Daniel longed to see. So first thing Daniel's hearing from Gabriel is there's going to be a jubilee to end all jubilees. And, and we don't understand what that—he he couldn't understand what that would look like. But then Jesus opens the scroll all those years later, and he says, I'm it. I'm who Daniel was talking about. Pretty amazing. So so when will we get there to where, man, the sin's totally gone, and, the, and, and bad stuff's not happening anymore? It's kind of like, you know, my— uh, my kids and, and, and wife and I, we're, we're gonna, our family's going on a trip to California next month. We're going to get some extended time off. We're going to drive to California. And before we leave Nolan County, what are my kids going to be saying? Are we there? How much longer? And that's the same thing we're asking God. We're like, man, it's been 2,000 years. Aren't we there yet? And, and the reality is... Daniel's told the time's come, and A sovereign God is driving. He's carrying history towards a good end. And in the meantime, we're called to live with courage and conviction and clarity because we trust that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. All right? And so we don't understand this. if We don't understand this concept of jubilee. And then there's six things that, that, that Gabriel tells Daniel are going to happen kind of at the, at the fulfillment or at the climax of this 70 weeks of, of seven. Um, he says, um, verse 24, Daniel 9, 24, to finish transgression... To put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. So somehow, God is going to bring an end to transgression. Put an end to sin and make atonement for iniquity. On a positive way to say that, he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal the vision and the prophet and to anoint a most holy place. To, To seal the vision and the prophet is the idea of putting that ring of authenticity on it, putting that seal of authenticity on it, saying everything here is true. And God ultimately authenticates all prophetic word through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is how God says everything that the prophet said was true. He anoints the most holy place. Is this talking about some kind of end of the world new temple in Jerusalem that's going to be built I think it's talking about the new covenant simple, which is you and me, people that have placed their trust in Jesus, all right? Uh, that were bought with a price at the cross of Jesus, all right? And so that's what this, this prophecy is about. Uh, it's about putting an end to sin and ushering in righteousness. And so if, if we understand the future, we're able to live lives of, of courage and conviction. I'm going to try to turn on the jets here. So how do we understand the future? Again, if we're trying to make this work mathematically, try to take this 490-year period here and try to make it work out mathematically, that's kind of an exercise in futility. People can do it, but it ends up being a stretch. Um, But what we're told in, in verse 25 is, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks or seven, seven, seven periods of seven. So in other words, from the time that the word is given to go restore and rebuild Jerusalem until some anointed person, and that word anointed is the Old Testament word, Mashiach. It it means, it often refers to kings or priests or leaders. But all those kings, priests, leaders in the Old Testament are shadows that point beyond themselves to the real anointed one, the real Messiah, Jesus. We're told that from the time... That the word is sent out to restore Jerusalem, which that happened in 539 B.C., just a few months after Daniel gets this vision. King Cyrus says, hey, why don't some of you guys go back home, rebuild the temple, rebuild your city. And there was an anointed one that came uh, a a period of time, not 49 years exactly, but a period of time later, there was this man named Nehemiah. And years after the word had gone out to restore Jerusalem, Nehemiah is is the cupbearer of a king um, uh, of Persia, and he says, hey man, I heard that my, my people, but they still haven't finished the temple. The walls are still uh, broken down and, and Nehemiah becomes this chosen leader to go and start rebuilding the city and the walls of Jerusalem. And then we're told that from that anointed one, from that person, from that leader, uh, there will be 62 weeks and it will be built again with squares and a mo- You can go ahead and put the graphic up. I don't know if this is helpful or not, but... Um, Kind of laid it out in, in picture form you in the balcony may not be able to see it, but we 've got this Edict of Cyrus, which I think we read about in daniel nine hundred and twenty five which said that the people of, of the Jewish people could go home and, 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 and rebuild their their temple and their land, and a symbolic period of seven weeks passes while they 're building this and then, and then Nehemiah hears... Uh, man, uh, they still haven't finished that. And he's raised up as this anointed leader to come and finish the project. And so 62 weeks of time after Nehemiah, again, this is a symbolic period of time, but a long period of time happens. And what does Daniel say is happening? It will be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So all through this period after Nehemiah, the temple is being added onto and renovated, but it never matched the glory of Solomon's temple. And so around uh, in in the second century B.C., uh, this bad king named Antiochus Epiphanes, which if you, if you lived in that time, he, you would think, man, this is the worst guy that's ever going to live. And he persecuted the people, uh, the Jewish people. And he, and he tried to desecrate the temple. And they stood up to him. And there was this Maccabean revolt. And, and they ushered in a cleansing of the temple. And they started rebuilding the temple again. And a, 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 a few years after that, this guy named Herod put a bunch of money into making the temple something glorious and beautiful again. And it was that temple that Jesus Christ walked in and said, not one stone will be left upon another. Sixty-two weeks pass, and this beautiful, strict structure is built. But it's built in a troubled time. Again, these are symbolic periods of time. And at the end of that sixty-two period, sixty-two week period, at the end of that symbolic period of time, we're told that an anointed comes. I believe this is the anointed, and he would be cut off, verse twenty-six, and would have nothing. Now, if you read this, if you're Daniel reading this, what does it mean that an anointed is going to be cut off and have nothing? Like, we wouldn't get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John out of that. But when we read this from the perspective of the Gospels, from when we read it from the perspective of the New Testament, what we see is a foretelling that, that the atonement is going to happen, the, the rescue from sin, the freedom from slavery, the great jubilee is going to happen by a Messiah, not coming and flexing his muscles with all his might, but this Messiah who comes and he lays down his life and he suffers at the hands of his enemies. And we put that together with what we read a couple of weeks ago in Daniel 7, this one like a son of man who somehow is... Overcomes that fourth beast, the Roman Empire, and he's seated at the right hand of the ancient of days. What we get to, to see a picture of is a picture of the gospel. And then we're told that um, that, that anointing one will cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What happened within a generation of Jesus dying and rising again? The people of that fourth beast, the people of the Roman Empire, they came and they rolled and they rolled into town, they surrounded Jerusalem, just like Jesus prophesied that they would, they tore down the temple, the Roman general Titus, in fulfillment of prophecy. Not one stone was left upon another. The people of the princes to come will destroy the city of the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. And then from there to the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And so from that point in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, to the end of time, there will continue to be struggle and war and hardship. And he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. This is, again, probably referring to this any number of evil, antichrist type of figures we could fill in the blank. And one day there will be a final one. For half the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. And again, I, I interpret that as being the destruction of the temple all those years ago until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What's the decreed end that we poured out on the desolator? We read about it in Daniel 2. We read about it in Daniel 7, that all these beastly kingdoms would be overcome under the feet of the one who's crucified and risen and who will return. So what in the world do we do with all this? Um, there's a period of time, and Nehemiah rebuilds the, 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 the city. There's a period of time, and Jesus comes, lives, dies, and then we enter into this, as I understand it, this final seven-year period. I, I used to, you know, all my life growing up, people were looking for when the, when the tribulation was going to start. Uh, I remember this book on the coffee table when I was a little guy called 88 Reasons the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. Anybody buy that book? I think 1988 came and went, didn't it? So then I went to, I started going to, after I became a Christian, I started going to places in this world, and I realized that tribulation has been happening for some people for 2,000 years. Not everywhere all the time, but It's happening. And the scripture tells that over time, as we draw closer to the end, tribulation and trouble will intensify. There's a series of bad characters that come along and try to control worship and try to turn worship towards themselves. And one day there will be a final one, and he'll be dealt with, like all the previous ones have been dealt with. And what will be ushered in will be a kingdom that has no end. What will be ushered in will be a, 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 a day when evil and sin is no more. All right? And so how do we live from now to, the, to then? If, 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 if we're approaching this correctly, and maybe we are, maybe we're not, but if we're approaching this correctly, then we're in what um, Gabriel or Daniel would describe as the final week of the, of the world as we know it. It's been a long week. It's been a couple thousand years already. You've had weeks that felt like that long, haven't you, Ronald? I mean, it's a long week, but it's a symbolic period of time. And seven is not accidental. It took God seven years to create this world. And there's a picture here of, of new creation taking another week. But it's a week that's in God's good time. And a sovereign God is carrying this world towards a good end. And so what do we do in the meantime? Well, One thing we don't have to do is we don't have to buy books about when the world's going to end. We don't have to try to de- guess the date. We don't have to get caught up in, 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 in giving uh, liars and charlatans money because they tell us that they've got the secret for when the world's going to end. Um, anybody tells you they've got this nailed down? Man, I don't have it nailed down, obviously. But anybody tells you they got it nailed down, you need to run the other direction. There's some things we can nail down, though. Man, Christ has come just like he was promised. Christ is returning, just like it was promised. And when he is, there's going to be some people that are going to celebrate. And there's going to be some people that are going to weep. And you and I get to choose which one of those camps we're in. And we get to choose today if we haven't chosen already. And so we don't have to get carried away by all these schemes and tricks and people that that claim they know the details Everything that's needed to happen. We don't have to watch the news and wonder, oh, what's going to happen next that's going to tell us when the world's going to end? Everything that's needed to happen for Christ to return has happened. We're in the home stretch. Acts 2, Peter says this is the last days. So we don't need to be watching and trying to figure out a puzzle. We can, we can watch Christ. We can keep our eyes on him All right? And so, how do we live today? Those who understand the future can live with courage, clarity, and conviction. We can have clarity on what the main thing is. We can have conviction and that we have confidence that God is carrying this world to its fulfillment, to its goal, and we can be part of that. We can have courage. Beasts, beastly kingdoms, beastly bosses, they come and go. But Christ remains. Our Babylon that we live in, the Babylon you live in isn't maybe threatening you with persecution, but our Babylon is very seductive. It operates through seduction. And if you know that God is taking this world to a, a very good end, uh, you can have courage to resist that seduction. You can have clarity on what's real and you can have conviction. I want to read to you in closing 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul had said that in the last days, lawlessness would increase. Godlessness would increase. People would just be doing anything they wanted to do and not caring about it, having no shame about it. And he said that people wouldn't listen to sound teaching anymore, but they would just go around until they found somebody telling tell them what they wanted to hear. Does that sound like? Okay. And so Paul in chapter 4 tells Timothy, this is 2,000 years ago, he's telling Timothy how to respond to that. So here's how you and I respond as we live in a time when people want their ears tickled. And you and me want our ears tickled some too, don't we? As we live in a time of rebellion against God, in a time when we know the shot clock is winded down, the end is going to come, evil will be judged, here's what we do, Paul tells Timothy, and he tells us, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing kingdom, preach the word. That's what you do. You preach the word, but I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. If you know Jesus, you are. Proclaim the good news. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with we'll complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth. They will wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Those who understand that God has taken this world to a, a future that's good, can do verse 5. You can be sober-minded, clear-headed. You can endure suffering by the power of, of God's Spirit, by the grace of God. You can endure suffering. You can do the work of an evangelist. You can be so infected by the good news of Jesus that you just can't stop sharing it with those you come in contact with. Fulfill your ministry. Whatever that is. What do you do in light of the fact that God is carrying this world to its appointed end, that one day he's going to make everything new, you can fulfill your ministry. You can do what God put you on earth to do. That's to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of the nations, fulfill your ministry. The band's coming up. I want to ask you, when the the king returns, are you going to weep? Are you going to rejoice?